Hi, Alison. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm really looking forward to finding out more about lily pads and what lily pads do and how you are helping save the world. And just really interested to know what it is that you've done building your business and the sort of things that you've come up against as well. So tell us more about your business, please. So Lupad does environmentally friendly sanitary products, which are reusable. We started out right out in rural Kenya, coping with an affordability crisis out there. Most of the girls can't afford products. And in desperation to remain in school, quite a lot of them were using transactional sex. Quite a lot were using cloth and leaves and finding they leaked and they couldn't attend school. And the idea was trying to find a sustainable solution to this. And everything got built around that was how we made sure the business model was sustainable, as much as the materials were, and that it was also healthy and something the girls liked. And bit while building all of that product in, we ran the product trials for February last year and have built since then, I was also innovating constantly in the UK. And when I messed all my British friends to try it, the strong feedback of, oh, these are really comfortable, kept appearing on my desk. And after a while, I sort of sat back and thought, I'm not entirely sure why I'm getting this feedback. Like, great, this is fantastic to see, but what's making them comfortable? And more so than what people are currently using. Mm. And so as I sat everybody down to question them on their choices, uh, a lot of the girls started to go, well, oh, I get a rash if I use a sandwich product, or mine itches, or I'm not that comfortable. And then I started doing the research and realized this was a more and more common problem of women across the country. And that led me to realize just how much our current disposables aren't healthy. And this is something I kind of knew and never really thought about. But the average disposable on the market has somewhere between 40 and 80% of plastic within it. This is against your body for four to five days a month. And all of a sudden, all the side effects people receive are really normal. But mm. that's not a healthy thing to be thinking, oh, I'm in pain five days a month because of a product I use and I've just accepted it. Yeah. And so that's where the British idea came from with, well, we could make an environmentally friendly product here and by it being environmentally friendly and therefore it has natural based materials and it, it's breathable, it suddenly fixes all these problems that currently occur. And then started looking at all the design elements and how we can make it fit to people and what is actually important to most people with these kind of products. And then the idea blossomed into, okay, well then we can have two diff very different products because they are two different markets of two different women and use the British model, this British product fits to kind of subsidize what's happening in Kenya. But as I built it and I was constantly thinking, but I want to know that both models are sustainable and independent of each other. And so looking at how we price in Kenya so the pads are purchased, but they're only purchased at manufacturing costs and commission. And then all the fun overheads of running a business are covered by sort of the cost that comes out of the UK, which means we can grow there, but we can grow on our own funding and on our own resources, as opposed to having to be looking for grant funding or having to rely on one side or the other. Mm. So at the moment, the British product is getting ready to launch. And the Kenyan one is on its like third level of iterations and about to go into two new communities. We're just growing as it goes. So what, what took you to Kenya in the first place? My school were always partnered with this charity out there and we used to do a lot of fundraising for them. And then I got to university and I'd always loved the way the ethos, the ethos of the charity. So they were an orphan support trust. That was the first thing I loved, that they weren't an orphanage. They said they, the HIV rate in the area is one in four, which means they had a very high orphan problem. And they said, okay, but the Kenyan way that families generally cope is you kind of adopt your siblings' children if their parents die. 
And this meant they had families of 15, 20, and parents couldn't cope. And so what the charity did is said, okay, we're going to step in to help the parents. And so we'll step in to make sure the kid, they've got money so the kids can go to uh, school, that they've got the ability to feed all these mags, but they'll still remain the parents of their siblings' children. And that meant it was really sustainable because in years to come, when the kid's sort of 18, normally they're going to have to leave a foster environment and actually they've, they've still got that family, they've got that community. They're not seen is any different from kids in the community. And it also meant the charity could help a lot more children because they're stepped back. And I, so I love this model. And then what I wanted to do was go out and see how it worked on a practical level. Mm. And I got out there and one of the first things they said was, oh, can you help with our sexual health? And 18 year old me was like, uh, I mean, I can <laughs> teach you resources, but I am not trained to do this. And they said, well, well we, that's what we need you to do. And so I was reading from their scripts and then thinking, oh, this is, materials that you've been given by other charities that specialize in this the stuff that the uk used 30 40 years ago and stuff that we know there is more effective ways to do it now and then i was looking at that and i was looking at the fact they had a very high teenage pregnancy rate which they didn't really know what was stemming from a lot of the girls were coming in they wouldn't say who fathers were and they had got a rising hiv rate but only in their teen girls and ideally their rate should rise or fall in this same age group across uh, the sexes because then you know that their partner's roughly the same age. Instead, if it's only rising girls, you've got this moment of who are these partners? Mm. And as I came back to the UK and thought, that's what I would love to do is go and do that research of where, what is going on that's we're seeing these effects, but also what in the education could we be improving on a very practical level? And so that was my dissertation then was saying, what can we change? Should it be that single sex helps or should it be age groups who teach or 12 to 14 year olds about sexual health and then 14 to 18? Because everyone knows a lot in a classroom and not a lot. And if you put it all in one class together, it's quite hard for a teacher to know who knows what and the effects within classes really change. Kids want to, nobody wants to showcase they don't really understand. A lot of the time we get this effect of like really wanting to prove that you've been there and done it and you know it all. And this really can disturb a learning environment. And so my dissertation was basically teaching the same sexual health and changing classroom dynamics. And then I said to a group of girls who were sort of 14, let's look at, for them, why they had so many teenage pregnancies. And I wanted them to create a very simple mind map of reasons that a girl in their class might choose to be sexually active and reasons they might not. It's generally a really effective task of putting something in your head. Because if you say it to a child here and they go, Oh, because I'm not really sure and my partner wants to and I, I, I don't want to lose a relationship. And then you look at well, what could go wrong and they're like, well, mum would be really mad. If you're explaining it in those words rather than in the, oh, well, peer pressure versus uh, the rate of sexual health diseases, it's easier to transmit. Mm -hmm. And the kids, she came straight back and said she couldn't afford sandwich products. And I was like, all of a sudden, all this research into how kids were learning was irrelevant. They could... You could teach them the best information, they could know the risks, but if the risk is, you know, it's HIV is it for them, versus, well, you have to drop out of school, it was a very different scenario. And so that kind of brought me onto a business to help solve that. Brilliant, brilliant. So what would you say your business superpower was? Uh, I think one was this drive for sustainability in terms of the business. 
one of the first things a lot of the Kenyan girls would say to me is, are you American? I don't know what the question is. So I'm asking, what do you want to know? No, I'm not. And they'll be like, because they're very used to USAID. USAID is very much tied to who's in political power, hence the gag rule, and whether or not they fund contraceptives. And so a lot of the girls who received sexual health were also aware that sexual health, what the program was and whether or not it existed, seemed to change on something they didn't, didn't know about. And that was who was in political power in the US. And so whether or not they believed your business was sustainable was dependent on what nationality you were because almost right. who the grant funder was. And so to me, from day one, it was like, this has to be sustainable within the community. That means the community have to agree to that solution. They have to buy into it. They have to like the, pro the product. And so that way of having to sit there and go, okay, here's a sanitary pad that I've just designed. Tell me what you do and don't like, and then build exactly from there. I meant we had a really strong product within the market. And so it was things like the girls would go, I, it leaks. I was like, does it? It's designed to last for eight hours. And they go, yeah, because I want to wear it to and from school. Suddenly, 10-hour day. I'm like, ah, we need a much longer-lasting product. So the product had to change. And this, like, drive to ensure that there was the best market fit meant the product just kept evolving very slowly. So it really fit. And I think that became the little superpower within it. So are you the only sanitary product that's environmental or sustainable? Um, it depends where your definition of the word is. Okay. A lot of the girls in Kenya are going to be using leaves for the most part. Or <laughs> okay. And that, in one way, doesn't have an environmental cost. Yeah. There yeah. are other reusables on the market. So in that sense, no, there are other ones. Most of the time, they're given directly through charities. Right. It's not something that can be purchased. But there are other ones there, as on the UK. In the UK, the most famous one is your menstrual cup. Most women know about that. Yeah. We're kind of the alternative, so you can wear it externally. It's a comfort factor for most people. But mm. we're the only one that's been really tailored to make sure it really fits with somebody's body shape and therefore is more comfortable. Okay. Brilliant. So can you tell us a bit about how you've engaged with, um, you know, how you're selling the product or how you're, you know, how are you reaching out to people? What sort of things are you doing and what's worked and what hasn't worked? And uh, George, choose a market for me, make my life half a question. Sorry? Do I choose a market? Do you want me to answer it for the UK? I guess you're talking about Kenya and, um, and the UK. Let's talk about the UK. So the product is just about to start trading in the UK. Right. So most part, a lot of the marketing hasn't had to happen yet. It's quite nice. But it's been a lot of talks, person to person, doing focus groups, going onto campuses, chatting about what people want, a lot in schools as well, because it's that kind of product. It's the kind that you want somebody else's buy-in, which has been a really interesting journey, especially talking to people who sort of talk a lot about menstrual cups but don't use one and saying, well, what's like your final bit? And it's like, well, I want somebody I trust. And with that comes, you can put me in a massive Facebook group, but I'm not really sure I know anybody in the Facebook group, so I'm not sure I believe them when they say, you know, it works, it doesn't leak, it fits like this. And that was a really interesting learning time of, ah, it's you want person to person. Almost all the facts and the figures are, less important to somebody you believe saying that it worked for them and they could do X, Y, and Z in it. 
and so lots of it now is currently person to person and then trying to build this brand and work out also what's important to people saying this is a really locally sourced product which was important to me was we had a, an entirely UK supply line for the British product but actually for most the young women we're dealing with reliability top on our list as in it doesn't leak and then having to jiggle okay where where does that fit and what do you want to hear it's a fascinating process and therefore hopefully in the next couple of weeks social media will start to reflect this and that's been an ongoing journey for me of how you use social media to talk to people and with people do you find social media hard to use yes as in, as in, as in not obviously putting things in but juggling <laughs> everything so running your business so you've got social media you've got you've got to go and talk to people you've got to you know do you find it hard to juggle everything and work out what to do where yes if there's anyone that thinks it's easy i'd like to chat to them there's <laughs> I need help. It's, you know, knowing what works as well. And mm. social media isn't very good for getting fast responses, but sometimes learning from it and going, okay, now what's, what works next time? And is this in tone with what we're trying to do? And how I say it, is that how you hear it? Mm. And then the fascinating bits of our temp demographic, the women who want the product are 18 to 24. The women who will repost stuff that I talk about when I talk about Kenya are like 50. Because that's the story that buys into them. And they're going, fantastic. Now, how do I merge these? Because what you both expect to see is very different across social media. But actually, on a website, you're a little bit more willing to go and search for the bits that make sense. And I've got 12 web pages that you can go through to find out what bit you're interested in. Mm. So, yeah, timetabling it all in is ongoing, bit of fun, and trying to work out who's most important when and what needs to be done. Yeah, it's a, it's an absolute minefield. I find, I find it a mi absolute minefield. I, re I was just talking to my mum. She used she used to run the business for my mum and dad, and but we're talking thirty years ago that they were in their prime, and she was like, in my time, you had the nationals, had a national newspaper, local newspaper, radio adverts, TV adverts, magazines as well. And you could choose which ones. And that was it. That was the marketing. Oh, you know, we've got so much more to choose from because we've got all of that plus, you know, everything else. Yeah. Everything else that all works on different time frames and mediums <laughs> and different levels of prep. Oh, it's, it's amazing. I kind of have that fascination when somebody was sat in a focus group and going, you know, what to you means you trust the product. Is it a shiny mm. Facebook page? Is it when it's targeted you across multiple platforms? Is it when it's in a store? Like what's the bit that you buy into? And then watching mm. as lots of people went, yeah, I want to see it in a store. It's again, interesting because most of our reusable suppliers aren't there because getting it into a retail store is quite a high hurdle to jump through. And then as you try and explain this, because a lot of people go, oh, like, how do you get it into a retail? How does that work? And then mm. watches a lot of people are like, oh. So things like if you put it into most retailers, they want, they'll pay you three months after they receive stock. And then seeing people's faces as they realize that's what your, your young company are jumping over. And it's that like fascination to see the other side of how things work. 
as well as being in both sides and trying to work out you know, what you think is ethical and how you think it you would like it to work and things. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, tricky. So when it comes to running an ethical and sustainable business, what do you think the biggest struggles have been so far? And can you tell us a bit about how you've overcome them? Thank you very much for listening to the Green Element podcast. We really value your opinion and we're wondering if you could take part in a survey that helps make this podcast better, please. www.greenelement.co.uk podcast survey. I hope you enjoy this episode. What do you think the biggest struggles have been so far? And can you tell us a bit about how you've overcome them? I think one of them, although it doesn't sound like an ethical problem, has been choosing the right legal model. Because as a consumer, I like trust your story. It's what you've told me on your Facebook page or generally on your website. And that's the bit that I would go to. And then starting the business, that was always my thing. Like, this is my story. We're in it for this little girl in Kenya and we're, we're creating this product. And then everybody started to go, oh, what's legal structure? And I was like, this, that to me was, you know, was the legal bit. It didn't necessarily tie into who we were. And then I had to go and look at all these different legal models and think, oh, where do we fit? And actually, we don't fit perfectly in any box. I've now learned neither do most businesses, in fairness. But because we had a nice, strong social mission, everybody went, oh, you should be a charity. And I was looking at a charity and I'm not sure I fit. We want, we want to trade and we don't want to, do, to have big grant funding reliant. And this doesn't sound right to me. And then looking at community interests and being like, oh, but our community is environmental impact. And actually community interest looks like it wants a specific local community. And half our community is also in Kenya. But then also actually the Kenyan business is a separate one because of different things. And well, how did these link together? Uh, all the different types of, oh, should be company by share or by guarantee? And having to navigate that minefield and then coming out the other end and everyone being like, oh, you could just work towards a B Corp certification and look at that route. I'm like, oh, this is the next bit of information. And then learning that quite a lot of it, you can do all the internet research you want, but what was best to me was talking to other businesses, going, oh, you're, you're socially motivated. What have you done and how does it work? And how did you find this level of reporting? Or is Companies House easier to work with than Oscar? And how do you cope with this bit of information? I'm not really sure how that fits to us. And hearing everybody else's personal stories, because for the most part, they, they knew more. They were in it more than a lot of the internet resources that was like, well, here's a very clear cut diagram. Like, oh, but we fit in four boxes in one. And then realizing you make that decision, six weeks later, you learn more information and you go, we're going to change, pivot, expect to move mm. somewhere else because that actually fits us better now. But I didn't necessarily know it at the time. I'd say that B Corp probably fits you quite well. Particularly is there's a B Corp office in Nairobi as well. Is, is there really? Mm, yeah. Because <laughs> you know we're a, we're a B Corp. Yep. Um, and yeah, there's a, Africa. Um, the African, East African office is in Nairobi. There we go. See, the bits of information you learn months after you make a decision and go, ah, this might have actually. Are you, cho- are you choosing to go down the B Corp route? Sorry, what was that? Are you choosing to go down the B Corp route? Or... I think so. You think it so? just, it seems to fit best in terms of, I got to the point where I was saying to people like, what, 
what is it you want to know? Is it that the legal structure to you is that that proves the impact? That's how you see it? Like, why do you care what our legal status is rather than what our impact is doing and how transparent that impact is? And trying to work that out. And I was like, this is what I want. I want to be able to showcase. Look, mm. we're doing good. And here's the thing that, that proves it if you need that bit of like reassurance. I'm like, well, then a B Corp status works as opposed to something else that's like, well, here's the, the limit you have to remain within. Mm. And I think that's, I think that's, you've hit the nail on the head. It, what is it that you want to do? And I think if you come from the right place, you know, you'll end up choosing the right decision because you, it, it's what you want to do. So therefore, you, you are doing the right things and you're trying to achieve what it is that you're trying to achieve, then you'll end up doing the right thing. Yeah, regardless of... Yeah, so forget about what other people think because no one knows your business better than you know yourself. I had like, a fascinating conversation with someone this morning when they were like, but it's at the end of the day, it is, it is what you're doing. And if you're, we were having this chat about half the business operates in Kenya and people have very different visions of how they believe aid and trade should work. And sort of explaining that to different people, like this is the stance we took and this is why we took it and this is how it works. And yes, it will look different to other ways that you can see aid and these for the most part is why. And sort of saying, well, sometimes when people are asking, it can feel like going, but because this is what research says is currently working, this is what the community adopted. And they were going, if you're doing it for the right reasons, you have an answer for every question that is open and honest, and you can come and see, and I will show you around. That's most part what the buy-in is, as opposed to what it looks like on a piece of paper. Yeah. Or if you're having to craft the answers to go, oh, this, this is how we're doing it, because this showcases rather than, okay, come and see which is now almost my default. It's like, oh, look, I'll show you. And everyone's like, I just wanted a quick answer. Like, oh, okay, you asked a question I like giving detail to. Sorry, you're not going to hear everybody's stories. What's the one piece of advice you could give people about how to help them with their purpose and um, with, what, with what you've just been talking about? You know, you're talking about the legal structure and um, you've gone down various different avenues. What's one piece of advice you could give to our listeners about that purpose and how to move that purpose? Don't ask easy questions, do you? <laughs> this is going to sound really corny now, but you, you have to really believe in it hmm. because it's the thing that's going to get you through. And so it's the mornings you wake up and you're like, oh, I've just got a day of tax to deal with. And you've got to know that you're doing it for the, you care about for me the little girl in my classroom like mary is the moment that i was like i am fixing this for you and i want this to work and i'm going to accept that i need to read four pages of four days of legal models to make sure that this works for you and so having something that truly believes in and also then for the times that people ask the questions and you're like i'm not i don't i'm not with you on why you care or how that works to go I believe in this. I believe that we're doing everything in the right intentions and we are doing everything with all the information that we can do. So this, this is why, and this is how I believe in it. And so actually being able to back that up, because then when I listen to people who kind of go, oh, because we're doing it for this. I'm like, oh, that sounds like you created a business and added on your social impact because the world has become socially driven. Mm. And 
actually them watching, sitting in the hub and watching loads of businesses and watching loads of corporates and becoming more obvious how many people are socially driven and how many people are profit driven with a social purpose. Mm. And saying a lot of the time, I make no judgment call either way, but there are ways to see it. And if you're starting a socially driven business, a lot of the time it does seem harder. There are more loopholes. And so you've got to, you've got to stand by it and be able to justify it and talk about it and actually really believe in what you're doing. Mm. Because it's a little bit harder at times. Yeah, I think I think that whole social purpose driven business model. I've never been hugely into making as much money as possible. And it's partly because I want as many organizations to be as green as possible. I guess that's our purpose. And um, but I've now I've realized 15 years on that it's so important to get the money right and to be making money because this is we couldn't do what we do if we were winging it or you know yeah. just trying to and i think in the past i probably did particularly when it was just me and one other person or yeah. me and two other people but now we're bigger um you kind of go uh okay we've got to think about profit we've got to think about you know, forecast, we've got all these things that in the past I was like, oh no, that's not what we're about. But actually, I'm now almost doing the reverse to what you were talking about. I've got to fit this financial model into our business because we're yeah. not going to succeed if we want to carry on. <laughs> yeah. And it is that, that really fine balancing act. Hmm. I was listening to somebody as they tried to navigate it and saying a support agency was sort of saying they needed to have all their employees over a certain wage threshold above, above living wage. And she was going like, from a paper point of view, I can see why that's fantastic. But when I've got 20 employees and I need to give them all the wage increase and that is going to affect the price of the product and how that works, this is a much bigger decision than just, I believe my employees should be paid more. And mm -hmm. that tie-in of, I, I want the best for my employees. I don't want to know that they're struggling, but... I can't help them if I go under because the product is then too expensive. And now, okay, how do you balance and make sure that everything fits? And I get that even like down to our manufacturers when I'm going with uh, products in Kenya, we've cut every cost like humanly possible to make sure that's an affordable product. But at the same time, everybody's favorite piece of advice to me is like, well, you could just move production to Bangladesh or China. That's much cheaper. Like, yes. At what cost? Yeah, I think communications, isn't it? It's, it is talking to everyone all the time about what it is that you're doing and making sure that it sounds corny, but making sure everyone's on the same page, making sure that everyone knows where you're coming from. So therefore, when you make a decision, it's not out there. It's actually you've spoken to everyone that it involves and therefore you know that that's the right decision at that time. In a year's time, you may make a different decision because different things would have happened. But at that moment in time, you've made that decision because you want to help as many people and not have negative ramifications. Ain't that keeping everyone on the same page as well? And yeah. it's often, like it sounds so much easier and then you're trying to do it and you're thinking, I've now got to have 12 meetings with 12 different people and it'd be easy if I could put them all in one room. But realistically, I'm also navigating 12 timetables then. So how many people can we join together? And if you have 
three meetings into people feel like they've been put into that one. They know you've been put into that one because time tabling work that way. You know, navigating to make sure that everyone does have the same amount of information and the same conversations were happening in each room and that everyone feel like they can also go, um, I don't agree. And how about if we did it like this? You're great. Okay, let's look at your your plan on this set of information. It's a fascinating learning curve in fairness. So when you were designing your product and um, you know you were getting the sanitary um, sanitary products up, and you were looking at the environmental impact, and um, were you looking at the carbon footprint of it as well? Or... Um, yep, yeah, I was fairly determined to do that as much as much as I could. Right. When you learn how good different information sources are, I think. Mm. So that was. Could you tell us a bit about how you approached the environmental management and carbon footprinting of, um, of it all? So a lot of that, sadly, it is not as easy as I thought it was, or I would like it to be. Yeah. I think the simplest part about that in terms of knowing the actual cost of environmental cost of manufacturing different materials and where they've come from and the disposable and the fact that quite a lot of times you are measuring which is least bad rather than which is best mm. and that was eye-opening in terms of just knowing all of a sudden all about different cottons and actually what organic meant and how it worked and does organic manufacture from halfway across the world beets locally growing oh well suddenly you tie in 17 other different things and so I then started on okay what is what's important to us and so we started in Kenya by saying it was always going to be as locally sourced as possible, as in for them national, because you, in one way, it was a little bit more secure. You didn't have to rely on export and import. And because the fact of having to fly things halfway across the world or ship them is an environmental cost that kind of shocked me. And so then when we brought it to the UK, it was the same thing. We're saying, right how far do we have to ship materials? Can we ship something less far? Now we can actually not use the word ship because it is all UK based, but driving miles is that better? And that was where I started with the environmental was how far has it come? And then looking at different forms of materials that are within it and saying, right, which is least polluting? A lot of the time to dispose of. And so when you're looking for your current disposable, that was kind of my pegging point and how far could we bring it to zero, right, if it's a plastic place and it can't biodegrade almost, or when you add a perfume, it adds the length of time that it takes to degrade in, um, yeah, to degrade in landfill. How do we reduce each and every one of them? So ripping out all the plastic and then having to sit there on every single spec sheet for materials and go, what does this actually mean it contains and you've put in it? And therefore, for quite a lot of it, I've now gone, who else does the certification? There's great levels of material certification that we can use and go, can you tell me what's in it? How healthy is it? How far has it moved? And then it just became a little bit of a piecemeal approach of transportation is at minimum. Materials are as low as we can go for the product we're doing at the current time. I mean, I guarantee it within six months, we'll find something that's better because that just seems to be how information is flowing. And then it'll be right. How do we, how do we put it in? How do we incorporate this? And then looking at now, the current question is, how do we make sure it's the most sustainable thing to dispose of? 
And yes, we're reducing it to like 2% of if you use disposables for the entire year, but is that 2% better at disposing than what currently exists? Does it do anything funny in landfill that I want to be aware of now and all of the disposal aspects? Hmm. It's a minefield. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad someone agrees. It's partly why we um, designed that software, Compare Footprint, yeah. is to help organisations become more environmental. Because otherwise, you end up using, I mean, you've got perseverance and you've got brains. Not that, not everyone, that could sound really bad. But, um, you know, you've got perseverance and you're bright enough to go into the details and look at it all and do what a lot of people wouldn't do. Partly driven by the fact that it's not top, top priority for them. And yeah. that's not fair to say that they're not environmental. It, you know, they're not more environmental than you or I. It's just that their priorities are different. And it is hard. And it is, we want, you know, people should be able to do it more easily. And I think that it is starting to happen. And we, but it is a slow process. And in yeah. that, like, it, it is not an easy thing to do. Right. And so a lot of time when I see you know, people going, oh, but they didn't use this thing. But there's probably a whole lot of thought process on why they didn't use it. Or it's something that they didn't even think about. It's on a post-it note on the wall of things we'd love to do when someone gives us the brain capacity to do it. But right now we're firefighting everything else and trying to actually look at what is most important today? And so I became looking at the environmental from a, a practical point of view of, we do not need to import this product halfway across the world. And from an ethical point of view, we could create jobs if we manufactured in Kenya and the UK. And then environmental kind of fit because it also works in those boxes and then it adds a little bit extra to pull it all together. Whereas if you're looking at different things, yeah, trying to pull it all together is... I tell you what it sounds like you've done is you've made it, you've kept it simple. You've, you've actually built from a very simple foundation and built out rather yeah. than try and solve everything and then get everything to fit into it. I don't know if I'm right or wrong by saying that. No, I think that some of it is that was like, okay, what importing material would be very, very complicated. So can we locally manage, can we locally source was the initial framework. And then it was, then everyone went, well, why don't you import it in? I was like, we can create jobs here. And because we would then have to import it and we wouldn't know the impact that we were having in the other country and whether or not it was beneficial. And then I saw the shipping and it was like, oh, I don't really want to think about that level of CO2 being emitted by a product we could have made here. And it all just was like, okay, how, how simple can we make this? How, being able to visit a manufacturer face-to-face, -face, put down a pattern, watch them make it, is infinitely easier than doing it over the phone, having tried both. But sometimes it is a game of, okay, but what, what seems easier? What do you know works? Whereas I began as a one-man team trying to do it on the side of my yeah, dissertation and fourth-year studies. would not recommend that. So it had to be able to be fairly easily managed. But yeah, if I'd started it with a different mindset or with a different amount of finances, we could have ended up somewhere completely different and then having adding the environmental impact mm. on. 
What sort of advice, is there any advice that you could um, share with anyone listening to this podcast? Um, I mean, I saw a really beautiful quote the other day that was like, I used to see problems in the world and think like, why hasn't somebody done this? And then I realized I am somebody. And so some of my advice is just try it. If it's a, a problem that's really irritating you, chances are it's irritating someone else, but go and ask that question a couple of times. And then see if you can make something out of it. The worst that can happen is it doesn't work. And by that point, I promise you a year on, you've learned an awful lot along that journey and it will be useful in some other way. I have faith. Mm. And so, yeah, just jump in, see what really happens. Really good advice. Really good advice. So how can we connect with you more? Um, Lilypads.co.uk .co.uk is a one good way. Facebook, lilypads.uk will have a nice breeze up over the next week. Let's be realistic on our time frames. And they are probably the best ways to see all the, the shout outs. There's a wee button at the bottom of our website to say subscribe to the newsletter, which means you'll be first to know when the product's actually unleashed as well. So you Brilliant. can get updates on our work in Kenya and little bits of bite-sized information about the product. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Alison. Thank nice. you. Thank you. It's really interesting learning all about Lily Pets and how you're getting on and what you're doing and everything about um yeah everything about what you're doing is brilliant absolutely brilliant more people need to be more like you as far as i'm concerned so thank you and um yeah thanks for being on the podcast no worries it's good fun thanks all right thanks so much for listening we created this podcast for you so we'd really appreciate any feedback you want to give us you can do that by rating and reviewing on your favourite podcast or for iTunes, visit www.greenelement.co.uk forward slash apple. If you'd like to keep in touch, then we invite you to join our free Facebook community, which is everything to do with sustainable and ethical business. Lots of daily conversations, themes and great ideas. A really great place to work and network with like-minded individuals. If you open Facebook and search for The Green Element, hit the group search function, we will let you right in. All of the show notes, any links, any references to the, on this podcast will be featured on our website, greenelement.co.uk. As a special thank you for listening, please head over to www.greenelement.co.uk forward slash podcast 2018 and you can pick up a free guide on how to green up and environmentalise your business or organisation. That's greenelement.co.uk forward slash podcast 2018. Finally, I would like to thank Ben Chatwin for writing the fantastic opening music. He is an amazing artist with a phenomenal following. It was a privilege he said yes to even write it for us. We look forward to seeing you next week and hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>